Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Daniil Medvedev, my pick for the final, is out. This is Tales from the Booth, Roland Garros, 2023, day three. I'm calling matches on TC Plus all week long, and all week long, I will be telling you about those matches. But when something this big happens, of course, I will change, change the plan and change the coverage. And obviously, the number two seed, Daniil Medvedev, losing to Brazilian 23-year-old Tiago Zybach Vilch, the world number 172, qualifies as something that I definitely need to talk about. So I caught up on it. I tried to focus. I, I didn't watch all five sets. Um, again, calling matches during most of it. Uh, but I, I tried to focus on the moments in the match where Vilch was having the, the most success and made sure to watch those to see what was happening here when it was Vilch, again, doing the winning against Medvedev. Wins in five sets again. Uh, Medvedev won the second set and the third set. Vilch won the, uh, the first, the fourth, and the fifth. Before I get into what happened on the court... I would like to start by making the argument uh, that I think this loss is going to age somewhat well. Because I think Vilch is a beast. And I will never understand if he does nev if if he doesn't become a top 30 player at some point. I just won't understand it. Uh a lot of mystery has been surrounding. Zybach Vilch for a long time now, and I'll get into kind of the uh, spark notes of the timeline. So you never know because it's been a, a strange career thus far, but after kind of watching what he's done this year at the challenger level, uh, this being his first match at tour level with a lot of momentum uh, and wind behind his sails, I just think he's capable of huge things, and I feel like I'm being conservative when I say, although he's 172 in the world right now, and from a ranking standpoint, this makes this an enormous upset. I feel like down the road, this is going to make a little bit more sense, or at least look less bad for Medvedev, because that's how good I think Zybach Vilch is. So, we'll see what happens. Medvedev also... Uh, said, hey, I think he's going to be top 30 by the end of the year if he keeps playing this way. Although I'm pretty sure Medvedev said that about someone else. I don't know if it was 
Von Reithoven? I'm not sure. He said that about somebody else, and it didn't happen. Was it Von Reithoven? I don't know. Anyway, uh, here's a just a quick quick thing on on Vilch's timeline. So, uh, this is a little bit different because of what I'm about to tell you. This is a little bit different, actually very different than like the Fabian Marojan situation because Vilch has had pedigree. He's had success. He's been really uh, one of the top prospects. He was one of the top prospects and a, a top five teenager, maybe a top three teenager of his generation. Junior U.S. Open champion. That doesn't always mean much. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Made the transition of the pros. Not the, the pros, but well, I, I think, yeah, yeah. He made the transition of the pros, I think, around uh, when he was uh, 18 years old. That was in 2019. And in 2020, he broke through in Santiago, winning the whole thing. At 19 years old, first player born in the 2000s to win an ATP title. After that, he had one other good result, which was in the Exxon Provence Challenger after the U.S. Open. Uh, but keep in mind, Santiago title, February of 2020, pandemic hits, March 2020, just after that sunshine double. And ultimately, that's the last we heard from Vilch until now. Now, some stuff happened, and uh, I got a DM uh, from a uh, journalist from uh, Sao Paulo who kind of filled me in. Some of this stuff I knew, some of this stuff I didn't, but I just want to relay the message. I'm not going to use his name because I, I didn't ask him permission, uh, but he DM'd me and kind of filled me in on some of the backstory, some of the stuff that's gone on with Vilch recently. Uh, beginning of the pandemic, he was investigated for violating quarantine when everything was super, super strict. Then he got indicted for domestic violence against his ex-girlfriend. I don't know if that, what kind of resolution was reached on that. I'm not aware of it. I don't think it's easy to find on the internet. Maybe that's by design. I don't know. But that happened. Uh, apparently, there was also some, some pretty violent altercations verbally. Uh, verbally abusive altercations with journalists as well. So it seems like Vilch had some had some issues going on, at the very least, fair to say. Did that bleed over to the tennis? Based on what happened to his results, probably. Fell off a total cliff. Uh, I had seen him, and I didn't really know what, what had happened, but and I didn't understand it. By the way, he also contracted COVID. Might have been some long COVID going on as well in there. Again, who knows? It was very mysterious, ultimately. Uh, I did I did see him once in 2021. I, I thought he was out of shape. I thought he seemed out of shape. I think I saw him in Hamburg. And I just thought he looked a little heavy, gained some weight, not the muscle kind, the other kind. But that's all I got in terms of what happened to Tiago Zybach Vilch. And he was always a, a, a case and a name of like, huh, kind of wild that he just went away. 
after being so promising as a teenager. All right, but this year, 36-10 and 10 record, two challenger titles, came into the Roland Garros main draw after qualifying, first time he'd ever qualified for a major, having won 13 of his last 15 matches. He had my attention. He really did. Knowing how dangerous he was, knowing how much winning he's done this year, he's played the entire season on clay courts, hasn't stepped foot on a hard court, all at the challenger level. This was his first tour match. So he's building confidence, building momentum. And he comes out here against Medvedev. And he plays spectacularly. He was unbelievable. So I started off by saying, I think this loss is going to age well. And that's because I think Thiago Zybach-Vilch is going to be a top 30 player. Now, he's 23 years old, and he hasn't proven it at all. So, I don't know. Maybe this is uh, an overreaction from one match, but he's just got the goods. He's checking so many boxes for me. Uh, and let's start with his forehand. Let's get to the match. This was the biggest difference on the court. Is that Vilch's forehand was the, the biggest weapon by far. It was the bully. It was the controller. It was the hammer. And Medvedev's forehand, which was the basis of why I felt confident that he was going to be able to bring a, a, a great level to Roland Garros like he did at Rome. His forehand was the basis for that. The basis for why I believed that Medvedev had taken a true leap in terms of what he could do on a clay court this year. His forehand was, in comparison, absolutely measly. Completely unthreatening. And underpowered. Forehand winners in this one. Uh, 47 to 15. Huge disparity. Look, Veald's forehand was at the highest level possible. Huge power. Good margin, you know, it's not it's not flat, which helps on the clay. So he's got heavy RPM as well as big speed. He's got simple and compact technique that I really love. And he chooses smart targets. So he was sustaining aggression and dictating and moving Medvedev around the court and using his footwork to create as many forehands as possible. Timing the ball well. Good angles on the inside-out forehand. Good on the run, moving to his right. Just the total package of forehand dominance from Vilch in this match. Medvedev uh, was getting attacked off of his cross-court trade. It felt like Medvedev couldn't hit a cross-court forehand without getting clobbered. Which is a problem, right? I mean, throughout the course of a match, you're going to have to hit, in the case of a five-set match, hundreds of cross-court forehands. And when you're, when it's just feels like, when it feels like you're hitting a softball into a sledgehammer, uh, that's a problem. Sorry for the strained analogy. But I think you get the point. Uh, not to mention, like, Medvedev 
just couldn't sustain any advantage in the point. He kept getting neutralized constantly, uh, and he couldn't really finish, especially the serve plus one game was not really there. So the forehand just wasn't the same as it was in Rome. And it wasn't the same that it's been all year because, again, this wasn't a Rome thing. I mean, the being impressed with the pace that Medvedev was bringing on the forehand side, like, that goes back to Miami. That goes back to when he was playing Yannick Sinner. And I was like, whoa, he's hitting his forehand as big as Yannick Sinner in this match. That's insane. And it's continued all throughout this great run that Medvedev has gone on. But... That just wasn't it in this match. It, he didn't have that. So what happened? All right, a couple things. Uh, was it nerves? First round of a major, pressure to do well. Maybe a slight part of it. I don't think he was all that bold. I thought there might have been a point in the match where Medvedev could have decided, I am going to try to do more. Because I am being dictated and I don't believe Vilch is going to make enough errors for me to win the match purely with defense and consistency. There might have been that moment. There wasn't that moment for Medvedev. But I don't really think it was ner It was nerves. Uh, I think it was conditions. Conditions that, again, Vilch didn't have a problem with. Because his forehand is bigger and badder than Medvedev's. This was a reminder that even though Daniil has improved the weight of shot on his forehand, it's still not it's still not in that that elite class. And this might sound like a big statement, but I do believe from a power standpoint, Vilch's forehand is in that elite class. He is in the I know I'm going to say a lot of names that have accomplished a hundred times more than Vilts, but I just want to, you know, say I do think his forehand is this big. It's in the Dominic team. Uh, Stefano Tsitsipas, Carlos Alcaraz, Nadal, not quite, uh, kind of class, right? It's in that conversation in terms of power and weight. Medvedev has improved. He's not there. These conditions kind of required that forehand. It was windy. One side of the court was against the wind. You're going to play half the match against the wind. You better bring serious muscle if you are going to find offense with these tennis balls, which I discussed a little bit in the mailbag. I've heard more and more players talk about it now, and it's becoming more and more apparent that, man, these balls are slow. I don't know what happened because it's still Wilson. The manufacturer didn't change. The manufacturer changed in 2019. Roland Garros went from Babolat balls to Wilson balls. So it's been Wilson. I don't know what's going on on tour because it feels like every major now, the players are like, wait, what, what happened to the balls? These balls stink. What, what, what the heck? I don't know why that keeps happening. I don't know why they're changing the balls as much as they are, seemingly. Uh, but... I don't know. It, it happens. I've, I haven't heard anybody say they like these balls. I think they're they're too slow and they fluff up uh, really quickly. And I've heard a lot of complaints about it. Anyway, wind, slow tennis balls, 
obviously this is still clay. You better bring the muscle on your forehand or you are going to be somewhat weaponless out on the court. Medvedev was weaponless. Vilch was not. Look, these huge high RPM forehands go a really long way, uh, especially especially in wind. We've seen that with Nadal. Nadal is by far the best player I've ever seen in my life in windy conditions. And it's not close because he can hit through that wind with the forehand and he's not, you know, the, the margin that he brings when he attacks with his forehand makes it so that the wind just doesn't really affect things that much. Medvedev being a, a, a flatter hitter and a precision hitter, it, it's going to bother him a little bit more. And if anything, he didn't have the confidence uh, to hit out and get offensive on his forehand. Uh, but even when he did, even when he tried to, I just don't think he had the power in him. And that's why when you, when you heard Medvedev post-match talking about it, you know, he said, I don't really think I could have done much more. That's what he said. And that's interesting to, to hear from a guy. I mean, look, it, it actually does remind me a little bit of the Marojan upset where you have a player who's being very offensive, uh, playing a very high level, not missing enough to really allow your consistency or your, your defense to really be enough uh, and, and just taking it to you. So Alcaraz kind of had a similar tune, which was interesting. But Medvedev said, look, I don't really know. It was difficult with the wind, and I really don't know how much more I could have done. And he played really, really well. And I think the reason why Medvedev feels like I don't know how much more I could have done is because I think he felt truly offensively helpless. And in the other por par portions of his game, man, he fought hard. His attitude was great. He really, he really did uh, dig deep physically, grind, good focus, good consistency. He defended as well as he possibly could. He, he fought his ass off. He just couldn't, he didn't have a weapon. I mean, 24% serves unreturned. Vilch was at 12%. Like, you can't expect much better than that on in, in, the, in these conditions. Your, your serve isn't going to bail you out. Uh, look, his consistency got him close, but it wasn't quite enough. All right. Uh, now, by the way, it wasn't just Vilch's forehand. And I knew Tiago's forehand was big. I, I knew that. What I did not know was that he was ready to hold up physically, was that he was going to finish at net masterfully. Really, really good volleys here. On top of the power he was bringing on his forehand. So you push Medvedev back with your forehand power. And you neutralize his defense by coming in once he's out of position. Once he's in a compromised position. Uh, Vilch did that so well. Uh, besides the panicky serving volley in the fifth set. It was awesome. Also, by the way. Could Medvedev just, just do everything he could to massage the ball uh, to Vilch's backhand and win like that? Like, was that the answer? Just get it to Vilch's backhand, avoid the forehand at all costs? When Vilch had to do damage on the backhand, when he had a short ball, when he had open court, uh, when he had a second serve return, you know, where Medvedev was going to was gonna 
hit second serves to uh, Vilch's backhand? No, the backhand could do damage too. That is why, that's where I'm saying conservatively, I feel like he, he's got to be top 30 soon. Because it wasn't just, it wasn't just one weapon getting hot. I'm looking at a full range here. Now you have the mental factor also with Tiago that I want to talk about. He choked the second set. He should have gone up two sets to love. And he sailed a couple of forehands. He missed a sitter high forehand volley off of like a really bad Medvedev lob that went way too short and he blew it. Uh, yeah, Medvedev played a, a made a really good shot at six all. But other than that, Vilch choked it. And then Medvedev won the, the, the third set, 6-2. And you thought, okay, that was it. He had his chance in the second set. He blew it. That's it. But ultimately, I, I do think that Vilch, first of all, deserves a lot of credit for, you know, keeping his, his composure and all of that and continuing to, to, to fight and resetting in the match. Sure. But the nerve management down the stretch... Uh, ended up being very, very impressive because Medvedev did go into I'm not going to miss mode. I think Daniil was like, look, you want this? You want the biggest win of your life? Earn it. Earn it. I'm, I'm not going to hurt you, really, but I'm also not going to miss, and you better earn it. And, like, watch the match point. Watch the 30-all point uh, in, in that 5-4 game. Look, was, was Daniil a little bit passive? Sure. But... Can you can you fully blame him? Can you can you fully blame him against a guy who ha has never had a win this big to be like, hey, uh, you nervous? Because if you're nervous, I'm not missing. So good luck. Hit some winners. And Vilch was like, okay, winner, winner, boom, on the forehand, both times. Part of this, I think, I truly think, just from getting a sense of the flow of the match was like, hey, I already choked away this match. I'm I ain't getting nervous this time. You can't kill me. I'm already dead. Does that make sense? Like I think the fact that he already choked away the match, it relaxed him. Because what's the difference between choking once and choking twice? At the end of the day, it's just it's still you choked the match. You had the win and you blew it. And I think because Vilch already had that experience in the match earlier on of feeling like, okay, yeah, I, I choked it away. It's done. I think because he already felt that, uh, he he got into this kind of carefree, loose, nerveless mentality. He was able to tap into that. I think it worked out in his favor in the end. Uh, not that he doesn't deserve credit for, you know, keeping keeping his cool. He obviously does. Uh, I do want. I do need to kind of mention Daniil's second serve. It's been kind of shaky. This isn't the first time, but never to this level. Career high, 15 double faults for uh, Daniil Medvedev. Did it matter? Did it change the match? Well, 10 out of the 15 double faults were in the three sets that he lost. Total points in this match were 177 to 173. I mean, when there's a five-point difference in total points, it's hard not to look at the 15 double faults. This is probably something, though, that 
that personally I've underlooked because Daniil has done so much winning. I've underlooked it. Look, his kick serve, uh, it's never been a strength. But there have been moments in the last couple months where Medvedev has been pretty shaky, pretty inconsistent on his second serve. It's never cost him to this extent, but perhaps maybe we should have seen this coming. Another storyline, another angle, uh, Medvedev's five-set issue, now three for nine in his career, uh, three and five since summer of 2019. I don't think he gassed out, though. I think he was willing to run as much as he wanted to run in the fifth set. So I don't think he gassed out. I thought he had his energy. Uh, I, there was a point in Medvedev's career where I thought his style was too taxing. And that was a problem for best of five tennis. I stopped thinking that at some point. Might I go back to thinking that? Maybe it, maybe in the future. Maybe at some point in the future. Best of five on clay? Maybe there's an issue there, but I'm not convinced. I'm going to throw it out there. I'm not going to ignore it as if it's not a question. But to me, my answer right now is no. You know, maybe as the sample size grows, that'll change. All right. Lastly, let's, let's address like the prediction part of this. I wanted to save it till the end because I never like to make this, this post-match stuff about me and what I said before. Uh... Look, I I don't regret it, you know. Uh, I don't want to be wrong. I want to be right when I make predictions, but I don't really regret it. You know, I've, I have I had confidence in, in my logic. Uh, there was definitely some misjudgment about the difference between Rome conditions and Roland Garros conditions. Obviously, uh, my assumption was that Roland Garros would actually be quicker. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I'm going to really try hard to get you guys some numbers so that we can see if that's if that's BS or if that's true. Obviously, Rome was super rainy. Roland Garros has been beautiful, dry, sunny. But I just think these tennis balls uh, might have kind of made up the difference there. So uh, that was one factor. But the biggest factor of anything was not Medvedev's level here. Uh, and then, you know, obviously on, on this occasion, you throw in the wind. It's been windy, though, every day. Uh, but the biggest factor, aside from maybe misjudging and miscalculating just how slow the conditions would be. Other than that, it's just Veeld being, again, really, really awesome. And my biggest regret was not that I picked Medvedev. My biggest regret is that Veeld hadn't qualified at the time that I made my preview. Now, I would have still made the same exact prediction, 100%. Like, I know myself. There's not a chance in the world that I would have been like, oh, like, uh, Tiago uh, Zybach Vilch, uh, I better not pick Medvedev to the final. That would not have happened. But I also know that I would have been like, hmm, rough first round draw. Damn. This guy used was an awesome teenager, has been awesome in 2023 has won 13 of his last 15 matches and has a bazooka weapon of a forehand. I and I I you know went on like 
Pam, uh, Pam Maldonado's podcast even after the draw. And uh, I was saying this. I was saying, look, one thing that you got to watch out for for Medvedev is the rough first round draw. So my only prediction is really that I didn't get to verbally kind of give that caution with Veal, uh, with Vilch, uh, because I know I would have done that. But ultimately, I don't regret the prediction. Uh, I, I, I believe in the logic that I that I used um, and the line of thinking and the assessment that I made and uh, I. All of you know the opinions that I've had about Medvedev on clay, uh, they are slightly changed from this match, but not entirely changed. Um, anything else I want to say? I don't think so. Uh, yeah. All right, let's go on to the two other matches. I'll be a little bit quicker on these. Uh, Kalinina coming off of the Rome final where she had to retire. So the first question was, okay, is her injury healed? Well, she comes in, no strapping on the left thigh, uh, but she's playing Diane Parry, who's 20 years old, moved, uh, grew up in Nice, moved to Paris at 14 years old, played Roland Garros qualifiers for the first time at 13 years old, won a match at Roland Garros in the main draw, uh, I think at 16 years old. Last year, 19 years old, beats Barbora Krejcikova, defending champion. So it just feels like, wow, Diane Parry, like, every year just does something impressive at Roland Garros. So is she going to take out the Rome finalist? Yes, she is. 6-3, uh, 6-2 off the top of my head, I think was the scoreline. So uh, not close. I don't think... Like, there's all that much evidence, really, that, like, Kalinina was completely, like, not recovered from Rome. Uh, I'm not saying that wasn't a factor, but I think she ran into a technical problem. And I think Diane Perry is amazing. I, I love her as a prospect. She struggled at the start of the year. She's coming off of a, a WTA 125 title in Paris. So she's hot. She's in form. Got a wild card. Wouldn't have needed a wild card had the rankings locked uh, a little bit later after winning that title. But that's besides the point. And I'm a huge fan of hers because of the variety she brings and because of the, the toolbox, the vast, vast array of things she can do at a high level at 20 years old. But the biggest thing in this match was her slice. And that's what I mostly want to talk about here. Uh, Parry will slice cross-court, and she has great feel for it. On clay, what I really like about it is she'll she'll take away depth. Like, she'll, she'll have it land kind of around the service box. She won't slice it deep, but she'll, she'll keep it low at the same time. If you don't keep it low and you slice short, well, you've just created like a, basically a, a short ball, essentially. Uh, an attackable short ball. But if you keep it low and you're able to kind of uh, finesse it in a way where it, it lands short and you bring your opponent inside the court, you put a player like Kalinina, whose strength is her backhand, in a really awkward position. Kalinina has no slice of her own. Like, literally, she has no backhand slice. She hits her backhand flat, and she's a reluctant volleyer. So, Parry just... Just killed her with the backhand slice. And it was a beautiful thing to see. 
It really was. Not because I have a rooting interest for Diane Perry, although I do, I do love watching her play, uh, but because I'm a big fan of developing, developing a full array of skills. And I don't think there's enough slice backhands on the WTA Tour, and that creates an opportunity for, well, for a while for Ash Barty, but now for Carolina Muhova and Diane Parry to take advantage of that. And you also have a lot of flat backhands on tour, and you have a lot of reluctant volleyers on tour. Reluctant volleyer, that matters because if you hit a short slice and you have someone who's comfortable coming forward, they're just going to be like, oh, thanks for the approach shot, buddy. In I come. But if you're a reluctant volleyer, you can't really do that, and it becomes a lot more awkward. If you have a flat backhand, well, it's tough to uh, hit from a low contact point from inside the court. You basically have to take a lot of pace off. So, look, Kalinina made so many errors off of Perry's backhand slice. I just thought she ran into a technical problem because she doesn't have a full skill set. And it was like the opposite of a lot of the players that she played in Rome, like Beatrice Haddad Maya, who I admire a lot. But if I were to make a nickname for Haddad Maya, she is the ball machine. Unbelievably consistent, never misses a ball, crazy depth. Like, unbelievable discipline shot selection. Great shot tolerance, too. And it's not like she's a pusher. Like, she's hitting quality trades. But it's literally the same ball over and over and over and over again. And Kalinina is a similar player to that. Uh, so she kind of went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Beatrice Haddad Maya. And that's why they played, like, a three-hour and 50-minute match. Um, but that was kind of the case. Let's look at her run in Rome um, real quick. Uh, Kudermatova, similar. Madison Keys, I mean, power player, but it's the same balls over and over again. All right? So, uh, Parry just offered a completely different thing here. Um, you know, at one point, Kalinina did make an adjustment and started getting, you know, just committing to consistency, playing higher and safer. And she does have better cardio, better fitness than Parry, who's worked very hard in her fitness. It's gotten better, but she's she's still underdeveloped there. And it kind of worked, but Parry was still able to kind of dip into her unbelievable shot making uh, to save two break points and get through this game at 6-2-4-3, uh, where she hit this awesome backhand drop shot, another shot she hits really well. And then she hit this, like, out-of-this-world backhand drop volley on the stretch uh, to save the second break point. And then she would end up holding, and then she would break in the next game, and she was off the court. So, look, Parry, she's only 20 years old. Uh, I, I tweeted out this very kind of nice complimentary tweet of her, and uh, there were some comments like, if she's so good, why hasn't she done anything yet? Well, because, like... She's 20, first of all. Give her a sec. And she has so many options that I, I do think it's a difficult game to really master at a tender age. It's, you know, when it's simpler and you have kind of one big weapon and, you know, the shot selection isn't a challenge and you don't have to figure out when am I driving, when am I slicing, how am I, you know, honing in the 
the uh, the return of serve and figuring out what to do on that. Like, there's just a lot going on. But man, I I really think she's going to put it together because there's other stuff that I like there too, besides the variety uh, and besides the volleys. I, I think she has enough finishing power on her forehand. She hits her spots on her serve. She's got a great kick serve. I don't know that she has a very good fast court serve, but on clay, it's a pretty good serve. And I think she's really athletic also. So I'm all in on, I'm so excited about Diane Parry. I, I really hope that she, I really hope that she starts to do big things soon because I think she's great to watch. Literally, honestly, Number one in my rankings of aesthetically pleasing players on the WTA tour. Number one. All right, let's get into Zverev. Although, um, man, I don't, I don't know how much I even want to talk about this match. Uh, I thought this was terrible to watch. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it was a brutal match. It was a brutal match. I mean, first of all, Zverev just wasn't as consistent as he needs to be. He made more unforced errors than Lloyd Harris from the back of the court. He was just missing way too much. Wasn't confident offensively off the ground. Wasn't hitting any forehand winners, like none. You know, he, he found the occasional finish on the backhand. So he wasn't really winning the baseline battle until the third set. Like, him and Lloyd Harris just toe-to-toe -to -toe from the baseline. He did do a good job in the first set tiebreak of finding Harris's backhand under pressure, and that was the biggest weakness on the court. So although Zverev missing too much uh, off of really both wings, but it was kind of shocking how many backhands he was missing because his backhand generally is just such a, a model of consistency. Uh, the one thing, that th though, that he did do well in the tiebreak, batten down the hatches, lockdown mode, uh, returns into Harris's backhand, defense into Harris's backhand, serves into Harris's backhand, and under pressure, Lloyd uh, Lloyd cracked. And the biggest weakness on the court was the biggest difference on the court in crunch time in the first set. So Zverev wins a tiebreak. Second set, it also goes to a tiebreak. I, I want to say this, too. In the first set, uh, Zverev didn't generate any break points. Lloyd Harris generated uh, break uh, three of them across two separate games. So he created the majority of the opportunities in the first set. In the second set, up until five all, Harris had uh, generated an additional three break points. Uh, two of them were set points, and Zverev generated zero. So I'm I'm sitting here, I'm like, Lloyd Harris is playing better. On clay. Lloyd Harris's win career win percentage on clay is like 25%. Look, I think he's dangerous. I think he's very talented, extremely underranked right now. Uh the storyline coming into this match was was interesting because both of them played their last match of 2022. Uh, at Roland Garros due to injury. Lloyd Harris had to have wrist surgery. We know the deal with Zverev with the ankle roll, right? Um, and, and Harris is trying to work his way back. I think Lloyd Harris is great, but should he be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe in baseline rallies with Zverev? No. I mean, that's, that's not a great look for Sasha, frankly. So basically, Harris got all the chances, just couldn't convert on the break point. And look, Zverev did serve well in this match. 
Yeah. Okay. So he did that well. Uh, very clutch. First serves breakpoint down more often than not. Uh, there was a, a really nice backhand drop volley that he hit on the second set point at 4-5. But mostly just really good first serves. Lloyd Harris not, you know, not able to sink his teeth into, into rallies on these breakpoints. So then it gets to 5-all. Zverev breaks. And then he then he hits two double faults. Or maybe three. Was it two or three? Zverev plays a horrendous game at 6-5, trying to serve out the second set. Goes to a tie break. And then Lloyd Harris starts cramping. Can't not can't make a ball. Like just spraying balls all over the place. Zverev wins the second set tiebreak, seven love. Didn't really even have to do anything. Third set, Lloyd Harris physically finished. Zverev, you know, going into the third set, I'm like, okay, like it would be good for for Sasha to really have, now that he's up two sets to love, relax, no more nerves. Uh, have a confidence-boosting third set. Like, have a third set that you can feel really good about. Yeah, hit some forehand winners. Didn't really happen. Didn't happen. Uh, you know, once Harris's legs went on him, and by the way, it was the second set, so I, I think Lloyd Harris probably has some work to do on his fitness at this point. Uh, once Harris's legs went away on him, and it looked like the left calf in particular, he just... It affected his ground strokes. It wasn't even that his movement got bad. It's just he he just wasn't really able to use his legs on his ground strokes, and it became kind of a mess. So Zverev wins the third set 6-1, and that, that was it. So you, you see how I wasn't impressed with this match? Yeah. Again, uh, really good first serve percentage from, from Zverev. But that's about all he did well. I just don't think he can, you know, have that much confidence from that performance. Um, so that's that. All right. See you tomorrow. Probably won't be as long uh, because there won't be as much to talk about um, unless, like, Alcaraz loses or something like that. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.